0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Midweek Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty. You may turn to Job 39. Let's quickly review. Job has been telling his friends that God owes him something, at very least an explanation. Especially considering that Job sees himself as being a righteous person who eschews evil, which even God admits about him, and yet he went through horrific suffering And in the midst of all that suffering, he wants God to give him an explanation. God shows up. And as I pointed out last week, God does not ever address the question that Job and his friends have been debating the whole time. They have been debating the causes, the reasons, the rationale for both suffering and God's holiness and sovereignty. It's a question that down through the ages people have argued about. If God is ultimately good and ultimately sovereign, why is there so much suffering in the world? The obvious quick answer to that is because it must serve his purpose. If it didn't serve his purpose, it wouldn't exist. But it does exist, and God is absolutely good, and God is absolutely sovereign, and he's completely almighty, and he's in charge. Therefore, whatever happens must, ipso facto, be what he wants to have happen. And since whenever God shows up in the Bible, he is surrounded by heavenly hosts, praising, singing, worshiping, crying about his holiness then we have to assume that everything that God does, because he is a good and a righteous God, everything he does has to be good. It just has to be those things that serve his ultimate purpose, his ultimate glory, and all the denizens of heaven shout for joy, cry out about his holiness, worship and praise him for his almighty creative goodness. So so whenever we're going through or whenever we see anybody going through anything that looks difficult, anything that looks like suffering, we have to recognize that somehow in the big scheme of God, in the big plan of God, it makes sense. It is still good. For instance, when the Lord said that he created the universe, he said that the angels, the angelic host, began to sing and praise and cry out to him. Celebration in heaven because he was creating something. He does not say that the singing, praising, and celebration ever stopped. It's all part of who God is and what God does, that whatever he does, by virtue of the fact that he is a good and holy and righteous God doing it, by virtue of that, all the denizens of heaven praise him, worship him, sing to him, shout to him, celebrate him as he does whatever it is he does, which is hard for us to imagine because when we're struggling, when we're suffering, it's hard for us to imagine that heaven is celebrating. They're not necessarily celebrating our suffering. They are celebrating the fact that God, the holy, righteous, just, good God, is doing whatever God is pleased to do. And they sing over that fact. Because as soon as God does show up in chapter 38 and begin to respond to Job, not to justify himself... He does not give a defense of himself. He just simply describes himself so that Job has some idea who it is he's talking to. And the first thing he does is says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who set its measurements? Who stretched a line over it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? In other words, God saying, I made everything and everything I've made so far is good and everyone in heaven celebrates and shouts over what I'm doing. Now, why exactly are you unhappy with me? You, the creature, you, Job. You can't even tell me why or how I've done any of these magnificent things. But in heaven, they celebrate it. So, Job, you're obviously on the wrong side of that equation if you're upset with me for doing what I do. Because whatever God does, number one, he does it and you can't stop him. You have absolutely no power to say, stop that. Who can stay his hand? Who can say to him, what are you doing? So that means he's going to do what he wants to do, regardless of whether or not you agree with it. And number two, all of heaven thinks it's great. So you're on the wrong side if you think what God is doing is not great. Now I'm tempted to just read through chapter 38 real quick and... But let me just summarize it instead and say the beginning of God's response concerning himself is that, he says, I'm in control of all the natural forces of the universe, whether that's the creating of the planets and the stars and putting them into orbit, or whether it's clouds or whether it's rain or whether it's snow or whether it's lightning. He's in charge of all of that. He knows where the storehouses of the hail are. And the implication of all of it, including the sweet influence of the Pleiades, the implication of all of it is, Job, can you do any of that? Obviously, you can't, and yet it's all getting done. Who do you think is doing all that? Well, obviously, it's God doing all of that, He's the one who can count clouds by his own wisdom. And then chapter 39, where we're going to start tonight, he starts talking about the animal kingdom, the actual creatures that he has put in his creation. And he's going to point out to Job, you have no say-so where the animals are concerned. And the animals continue to eat, they continue to procreate, And you don't know where, and you don't know how, and you don't know when, and you're not any part of it. So, clearly, you don't know the things I know. You're not in charge of the things I'm in charge of. But then when you get to chapter 40, once Job has said, uh, okay, uh, I get it, I repent, okay, dust and ashes, I'll shut my mouth, I Now I see who you are. Okay. God doesn't let up. That's the point at which Job seems to have learned the lesson. And Job pleads that he has learned the lesson. And you would think that would be the point where God would say, okay, now that you've learned the lesson, I'm going to turn you back over to your friends. Bye-bye now. Instead, God doubles down and talks about his own nature, his own character his own splendor, his own glory. So once Job is saying, I get it, I'm nothing like you, God then goes further and says, you're absolutely nothing like me. So that's where we're starting tonight. And by the way, since I said that in chapter 40, Job wants to basically say, okay, I've learned my lesson. And then God continues on. I can't even begin to count the number of times that I myself have thought that I learned the lessons that God was trying to put me through, but I also hear it from people all the time where they're going through real difficulty. In fact, I'm thinking of something just recent, somebody that we all know who's been going through a really, really hard time, and he just can't fathom why it is that God hasn't reversed his circumstances yet. And the argument he made to me was, I've learned my lesson. And I said to him, apparently not. Because had you learned, really learned, genuinely learned the lesson, God would have perhaps relinquished by now. But you know, even in the book of Job, God doesn't let up. Because our assessment of our own condition when we think we've learned a lesson is not enough for God who knows everything, who knows us intimately, who knows us better than we know ourselves, and God knows whether or not we have genuinely learned the lesson. So when you reach the point where you say, okay, I've had enough, let me up, if he doesn't, there's still more to learn. He knows what he's doing. And that's what he's doing to Job here. Job's like, okay, I'll shut my mouth. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm good. And that's the point at which God says, soon as you can be anything like me, then I'll admit that you can save yourself by your own hand. It's a really interesting theological point that we might get to tonight if I ever stop talking and start reading. So let's start at chapter 39, 1. God talking about the animals. He's in charge of the animals. Do you know the time that the mountain goats give birth? I could ask everybody in this room that question. Do you? Micah, do you know the time that the mountain goats give birth? Do you know if there's a mountain goat right now giving birth somewhere? Probably, maybe. Probably, maybe. Where? Some mountain (laughs) (laughs) somewhere. There's some goat on some mountain somewhere having some kids somewhere. But we don't know. Why don't we know? Because it's not up to us. That's why we don't know. If it were up to us, God would have at some point said, oh, let me explain the goat thing to you because you're going to need to know this because the goats are going to be completely dependent on you. Like, you will notice that the Bible does have things to say about relationships within families, parents and children. Why does it do that? Because you need to know that. Because your children actually are dependent on you. You do raise your children, and you do have to teach them, and you do have to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is something you have to do. So the Bible talks about that. But God never told you the mountain goat thing because it's not up to you. And yet the implication is, I do that. God says, I take care of that. You don't even know that. And yet the hills are full of mountain goats. Why? Because God is putting goats on the mountains. Now he's going to say that. Do you know the time that the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? In other words, when deer are having babies, are you there? Are you observing? Anybody seen a baby fawn being born lately? No. We even have zoos where such things are happening. We don't see it. We don't know. So God's question is, when the wild animals are giving birth and continuing their species, how much of that is up to you? question begs the answer which is none of it <laughs> none of it's up to me i don't do any of it and it's certainly not up to micah he doesn't even know where the goats are can you count the months that the deer fulfill or that the goats even fulfill okay here's a quick question how many months does a deer carry a baby before she gives birth to her fawn how many months does that happen how about goats? Different, different deal. Goats? Anybody know? You can find out. Huh? You can find out. Yeah, you could probably Google it now, but Job didn't have Google. Yeah, so the point is, you don't even know how many months they fulfill. Do you know the time that they give birth? Do you even know the method? God says they kneel down. They bring forth their young And that's how they get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring then grow up and become strong, and they grow up in an open field. In other words, not only do you know nothing about them being born, not only are you not participant in it, not only do you not observe it, but then they eat, and they grow, and they get strong, and they live out in the open, and you have nothing to do with that. How many animals, quick count, how many animals are on the planet right now that you personally have never seen? I don't mean breeds of animals. I mean, how many actual creatures are on the planet right now that you don't know anything about? You don't know, do you? I think there's plenty of breeds that I don't know anything about. Uh, Yeah. And yet they exist. And yet they thrive. And yet they have children. Yet they raise their babies. And yet... You have nothing to do with any of it. In fact, he then says, and then they leave and they don't return to their parents. That's something that we know about animals. They, at least wild animals, once they're born and they get strong, they leave and then they never really come back to their parents. Human beings always go back to their parents. At least in an ideal situation, you keep the family unit going. He says, with animals, I didn't build that family unity into them. They have babies. They raise their babies. Their babies get strong and then leave them and go on and have babies of their own. And the cycle just keeps going on and going on. And it has nothing to do with you. Who set out the wild donkey free? Anybody here sending out wild donkeys? Who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? When he says, who loosed the bonds, he's talking about the fact that they aren't caged anywhere. They're not roped. They're not chained to anything. They're not doing any servile work for men. They're out in the field being wild, being completely loose. Who set them loose? God says, you didn't do it. I did that. I created donkeys exactly that way, and I set them free. To whom, the donkeys, to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place. In other words, he's saying the places where they exist are the places that are best suited for them. Now, atheist, those that follow Darwinian evolution will tell you that those animals found those places to live because those were the places that were most conducive to the way they lived, except they never explain how those animals managed to exist prior to finding the place where they were best suited to live. God says, I put them in that place that was best suited for them so that they would continue to thrive, so that they would continue to have babies, so that they would continue as a species. I did all that. And again, the question is... Did you do that? No, of course you didn't. Who sent out wild donkeys free? Who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He, that wild donkey, he scorns the tumult of the city. By the way, donkeys by their very nature are wild. They they don't like to have anybody sitting on them. They don't like to do work. It's why donkeys are known for being so stubborn. When you try to get them to go where you want them to go, they just kind of dig in their heels and they're not going to go or dig in their hoofs and just aren't going to go where you want them to go. That's where we get the phrase mule headed from. And yet, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode a donkey that had never been ridden. And he took the time to specifically say, as a donkey that had never been written. And that donkey was subservient to him. Can you make wild donkeys subservient to you? Of course you can't. But God can. They're all his creatures. They're under his dominion. A donkey scorns the tumult of the city. And the shouting of the driver, he does not hear. That means the one who drives animals. One of the characteristics of wild herding animals is that they need to be driven, kind of like driving cattle on a cattle drive. But then when we're talking about sheep, when we're talking about those that belong to Christ, the language is very different. The language is sheep follow. Jesus says, They hear my voice and they do follow me. A stranger's voice they will not follow. Sheep follow, but wild animals have to be driven. And he says wild donkeys don't even react to a driver. They're going to go their own way and do their own thing because they're wild. Verse 8, he, the wild donkey, explores the mountains for his pasture and he searches out Every green thing. So he's up in the mountains. He's wild. He's looking for grass to eat. And then he asks, will a wild ox consent to serve you? Now, because we live in the peace and safety that we live in and we drive cars and we're not under any threat of like tigers jumping out and getting us and nobody here has ever feared that one night a lion would capture them or anything because we don't know now what it's like to share land and property with wild animals it's hard for us to imagine when god says will the wild ox serve you think about a wild buffalo or a wild i was down in texas last year we went to the cattle drive where they were driving longhorn steer really impressive animals but you do not want one of those charging at you. I mean, it's a couple of swords coming at you ready to gore you. And so when we're talking about wild oxen, he's talking about a wild and dangerous animal that can trample you and that can gore you and that can drive through you with his head. And then he asks, will an animal like that just consent to do whatever you want him to do? Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Or will he spend the night in your manger? No, that's one thing you cannot do. You cannot put a wild ox in your manger. Yes, maybe you could put lambs and goats in a manger. Don't put wild oxen in there. The implication being, I can make them do whatever I want. You can't. Can you bind the wild ox? in a furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? He's talking about using oxen, which they did use oxen, domesticated oxen. They would use them to pull plows in order to create a furrow through their fields. And he says, can you take a wild ox and throw a yoke on him? And put him in front of your plow, and can you get him to plow for you? Well, the answer is no. He's wild. He's going to run wherever he wants to run. He's not going to let you bind him with ropes, and he's not going to go harrowing the valleys after you. Verse 11 is kind of funny to me. Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? In other words, you've got work to do. In order for you to eat, you've got to work. Are you willing, just because a wild ox is so magnificently strong, are you willing to just let him go do your work for you? Do you think he'll actually accomplish that? Do you think he's willing to go out and just plow your fields for you because he feels like it? you Are going to trust him to do that? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain? Of course not. He's wild. He's going to eat whatever grain he can get in front of him. And he's not going to bring the grain back to you. He's not been domesticated. He's wild. Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? These were all tasks that trained domesticated oxen would do that had been raised from the time they were young with a yoke on their neck so that they would perform these duties but if you went after a wild ox not only is he not going to do that he's going to trample you he's going to gore you he is not going to cooperate with you again the implication is God is saying I do that I can do whatever I want with oxen for instance knowing that all wild animals are born with a wild instinct how is it that some wild animals become trainable that's because God built that into them God gave them a nature, a character but there are just some wild animals that you just can't train human beings just can't control them there are just some animals on the planet that you can't do anything about I'm going to read uh, out of this commentary the comments about ostriches because it actually says some things about ostriches that I didn't know I just sort of generally assume some things. But in verse 13, God is now going to explain why ostriches are stupid. And he's going to take credit for it. It's like, I I made them like that. Yes, they're really foolish, but I did that. The ostriches' wings flap joyously with their pinions and their plumages of love. For she abandons her eggs to the earth. I just find that funny. That God actually says, the plumage, the look of the pinions and the feathers, they're adorned so beautifully that they look like a lovely creature. But even though they look like they would be loving, they lay their eggs and then just abandon them. There's no natural affection built into that animal. For she abandons her eggs to the earth. And she warms them in the dust. And she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample on them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she's unconcerned. That's just stupid. She's gone through the labor, she's laid the eggs, and then she abandons her kids like her labor was all in vain, and yet she doesn't care. She's unconcerned about it. Because, verse 17, because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. That is fascinating to me because God also takes credit for giving wisdom to human beings. He takes credit for the fact that we know our own name or that we have any natural affection, or that we're able to accomplish anything at all, that we have any knowledge, that we have any insight, that we have any wisdom of God, he takes credit for all of that, and then by the same token says, there are creatures I have made who don't have that understanding because I didn't give it to them. Look at the ostrich. The ostrich is stupid because that's the way I made them. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Again, fascinating. Because you send a horse out running as fast as it can run, an ostrich can run faster. An ostrich laughs at a horse. And so even though the ostrich has this power and ability and speed, it's also just innately stupid. Here's what I read out of this commentary. The ostrich, a very bizarre bird, is odd-featured, often weighing up to 300 pounds and reaching a height of seven or eight feet. It flaps its wings, but it cannot fly. Have you ever seen an ostrich do that? I remember watching in a zoo one time where there was an ostrich running about flailing her wings, and my first thought was, she wants to fly so badly. God just won't let her. Talk about futility, running in circles, waving her arms, and going nowhere. Unlike birds that fly, such as a stork, an ostrich lays its eggs in a nest on the ground, just like God described. In fact, several ostrich hens lay their eggs in one nest, but if there's no more room in the nest, they deposit their eggs outside the nest. Anywhere in the sand. Other brooding hens, in the confusion of getting in and out of the nest, often crush these eggs. Ostriches seem unconcerned for it. And even the treatment of their young that seems cruel to us doesn't bother them. And that evidences their lack of good sense and wisdom. Ostrich hens may desert the nest if they're even overfed. Or if they're impatient, they may leave the nest before all the chicks are even hatched. If a human disturbs the nest, an ostrich may trample the eggs. Or a hen may sit on the eggs of another nest, completely forgetting where her own nest is or where her own offspring are. I didn't know all that about ostriches, but man, when you read all that, not real bright, not the brain trust. And yet God says, they're like that because that's what I did for them. The implication being to Job, are you responsible for that? Are you responsible for how relatively bright or dim any animal is? Did you have anything to say about the character and the nature of ostriches? And yet, in spite of its stupidity, An ostrich can run 40 miles an hour, which is faster than a horse, which is faster than you're allowed to drive up and down Hazelwood. So would Job even think about making such an odd bird? I mean, that's the implication. And yet that ostrich laughs at horses. So then speaking of horses, God starts talking about horses. Verse 19, do you give the horse his might? Now he's going to demonstrate the strength and the might of horses. One of the most fascinating aspects of horses is that horses seem fearless, and yet they won't cross a little trickle of water, but they will charge into battle. People get on horseback and ride horses into battle, and horses will just charge right into dangerous way. God says, I did that. Do you clothe the neck of a horse with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? What an interesting comparison. Locusts, grasshoppers, jump up and down. Have you ever seen a horse out in the field just suddenly start leaping? It's one of the most sort of happy things you'll ever see. You put a person on him, it becomes bucking. But sometimes horses will just kind of leap. He says, I make them leap the same way I made grasshoppers leap. But his majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and he rejoices in his strength. Have you ever seen a horse do that? Pawing the ground, clomping with his big hoofs. He says, that's a horse enjoying the fact that he has so much strength. He goes out to meet weapons. That's what I was talking about. He'll charge right into battle. He laughs at fear. And he is not dismayed, and he does not back away from the sword. The quiver rattles against him. That's where the arrows were kept, in the quiver. And those quivers rattle against him, the flashing spear, the javelin, all these man-made implements of war. The horse doesn't care. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground. And he does not stand still at the voice of a trumpet. In other words, when there's a trumpet blowing that the war has begun, come to the battle, the horse doesn't stand still. He charges into the battle. Verse 25, as often as the trumpet sounds, the horse says, aha, like he's excited. Here we go into battle. He sense, smells the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains and the war cry. Is it by your understanding, your wisdom, your knowledge, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? It's one of the most wonderful things. I enjoy watching it all the time. Sometimes we get hawks around here, and sometimes it gets really windy around here, and you see hawks just hanging in the air. And the wind is blowing, and they just have their wings outstretched, and they're just Hanging in the sky and just soaring without even flapping their wings, God says, I do that. I created that. By your understanding, is that how the hawk soars? Stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up? Now this may be an eagle, it may be a vulture, it's some kind of carrion bird, a bird of prey, a bird that lives on blood, one of the birds that cleans up other dead things. God created such a perfect balance within his what we call nature that animals not only live but animals die and God created a cleanup crew that flies in from wherever that animal is and and takes care of the carcass. And is it at your command that they do that? Or that they make their nest up on high? A complete contrast to the ostrich that builds its nest in the sand. Some of them nest way up in the cliffs, in the mountains. Verse 28, on the cliff he dwells and he lodges there upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. But he lives there. From there, he spies out food. I remember watching a a TV documentary one time about owls and eagles and hawks and vultures, and they were trying to create with camera effects what a bird sees from a distance. And it was fascinating because up to like a mile away, a mouse could move in a field and an eagle up on the side of a mountain would see it, zone in on it and dive on it, and hit that exact spot. It was just fascinating. God says, I do that. He zones in on his food. He spies out his food, and his eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. And where the slain are, there he is. By the way, that's something that even Jesus picked up. Somebody real quick, look up um, Matthew 24, 28. Somebody else look up Luke 17, 37. I guess I should assign that or everybody will go to the same place. Tom, look up the Matthew 24, 28 verse. And there is a parallel in Luke 17, 37, if you want to look that up, Steve. And then Micah, if you would look up Revelation 19, you're going to read 17 and 18. In each of these cases in the New Testament, you see that these birds are being used by God for judgment. And so here's a demonstration of these birds serving the purposes of God. The same way that he says that lightning serves his function, that he sometimes stops wars and kills people by the hail that comes out of the sky, frozen water, and he's destroying people with it. His creation, what we call nature, all serves him, his purpose and his function, and even eschatologically He uses birds in order to clean up the battle that he's bringing to the earth. So even the birds serve him. Okay, so where are we starting? I think I said Matthew 24, 28. Why don't you read 27 and 28 for us? For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, There the vultures will gather. So the coming of the Son of Man is apparently going to create a bunch of dead people. And wherever the dead people are, there's going to be vultures. There's going to be birds of prey coming in, cleaning up the mess. The parallel out of Luke. Read that, Steve. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken on the other left. And then... Footnote says, some manuscripts add, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. And then it reads, and they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So same idea. He says, one's taken and another's left. One's taken and another's left. His disciples ask him, where? Some people mistakenly say that that's a rapture verse. Jesus clears it up by saying they're taken to a place where there's corpses so that doesn't sound very rapture to me and wherever the corpses are the wild birds are there serving the purpose of God but then God goes further than that and says that giving the bodies of the slain captains and kings giving them to the birds is like making a feast for the birds God taking credit for the fact that he is giving the birds a great dinner. That's Revelation. Are you going to read that for us, Micah? Revelation 19, 17, and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he, cl- and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men both free men and slaves and small and great so here is God making a feast and calling it a feast it's a feast, it's a supper the same language that's used of the marriage supper of the lamb for the people who are destroyed at the return of Christ it's a supper for the birds and the birds come and feast on the great men the captains, the kings whatever they are they're still going to end up being eaten by carrion birds. Now, the point of all that is God is saying, I do that. I'm in charge of all that. So now that he is described in verse 38, his control over everything in his universe, his hanging of planets, his causing of influence from one planet to another and stars, now that he said he's in charge of what we call nature, rain and thunder and hail and snow. And now that he has said he's in charge of the animals, in charge of the creatures, the whole creation is controlled by and also aided by, supported by him. At that point, the Lord said to Job, and there's sort of an implication of, now given all that, he says to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the almighty? So he doesn't start by calling himself the almighty. He starts by demonstrating he is the almighty. He starts by showing his control over absolutely everything from the greatest, the creation of the cosmos, down to the details, feeding baby lions and watching when baby goats are born and he's in charge of everything within his creation and so based on that how do you contend with him now Job has been saying you know if God was here I would ask him some questions in fact back in chapter 10 verse 2 I will say to God do not condemn me and in chapter 13 22 he said Then summon me, and I will answer. Back in chapter 14, verse 15, he said, You will call, and I will answer you. In other words, he's saying, God, if you summon me into court, I'm going to talk back to you. I'm going to answer you. And you're going to call me, and I'm going to answer you. I'm going to have a conversation here. I'm going to charge you. I'm expecting some reply from you. So he is genuinely contending with God. And God says, the only reason you contend with me is because you find some fault in me. You find some fault with the way I do things. That makes you the fault finder. So will you, the fault finder, contend with the Almighty? Okay, ostriches are pretty stupid, but I got to go as far as to say contending with someone who has all the power is Equally stupid, if not more stupid. I mean, look at the question. How do you contend? How do you argue? How do you wrestle with the one who already has all the power? Through the years, I've asked the question over and over again. God gives himself the proper name, the Almighty. It's one of the names, one of the Jehovah names that he gives himself. He describes himself. It's not just a characteristic. It's an internal quality that he has within himself that he is the almighty it's an attribute of his so if he has all the might and he would know and since he says I have all the power and all the might exactly how much might does that leave over for you (laughs) yeah do the math that leaves zero might for you You have no strength. You have no power. So what about the fact that every once in a while you do stuff? Are you doing that under your own power? Since we've already concluded you have no power? Since God has already taken complete credit for the fact that any animal has strength or might or power or stupidity or stubbornness? That all the characteristics of animals are the way he made them? So then, what have you really got that you can brag about? That you can say, I did this under my own strength, by my own will, by my own power. I'm determined to do these things. Not if God is genuinely, truly almighty. And if he is almighty, you've got no grounds on which to argue with him. I think that's the point. And certainly God's point at this moment, talking to Job... How will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer me. Notice what God just did. Job's been saying, God's going to answer me. God's got to answer some questions. God keeps saying, since you have some knowledge, you tell me. Gird yourself up like a man. I'm going to ask you questions. You're going to answer me. And Job kept saying, when God calls me, you call me and I'm going to, I'm going to answer you. When you call me, when you summon me, I'm going to answer you. I'm going to talk back to you. I'm going to state my case with you. I'm going to argue with you. Notice what Job does now that God finally shows up. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am nothing i am insignificant what can i reply to you so job's been saying you you show up here you call court with me, and I'm going to demand some answers from you, and I'm going to answer you, and I'm going to talk back to you, and then God shows up, and Job goes, no, I'm, I'm not going to do any of that, thank you, no, because uh, now I get some sense of who you are and what you're about, and I realize that I am insignificant. And that happens all the way through the Bible, whenever anybody comes in contact with the real God, just like Isaiah seeing the glory of God and having to admit, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. People do not come in contact with the real God and then stand up on their hind legs and say, look at me, God, aren't I something? That never happens. Instead, when people come in contact with God, the first thing they recognize is, I'm nothing. I'm insignificant. How can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken. I think that's Job admitting, yeah, I I was bragging. (laughs) When you weren't here, oh, man, was I saying some stuff. Uh, You didn't hear that, did you? But while you weren't here, I was really boasting about, man, if you were here, I'd talk some stuff to you. But now you're here, and I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and shut up completely. Once I have spoken, I won't answer again. Even twice, I will add no more. In other words, I spoke once. I shot my mouth off once. And now you're here. I'm not going to do it twice. I'm just going to let it go. I'll add no more, nothing. Now that's the point at which I said in my introductory comments, I said, that is Job essentially saying, okay, I've learned my lesson. Okay, I get it. I've I've learned the important lesson. I will now shut up. I will not contend with you. I will put my hand over my mouth. I will not reply to you anymore. Okay, I've learned my lesson. I've had enough. Let me up. You would think, That a kind, gracious, loving God would at that point say, okay, now you've learned your lesson. But God doesn't do that. God doubles down. And that is exactly what we're going to pick up next week. Because now God is going to describe himself. Not just his characteristics, not just his actions, not just his control of the universe, his creation of everything, not just giving homes and land and characteristics to all the various different animals on the planet and pointing out that Job doesn't do any of it. God's closing argument is, do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm like? And boy, that just kind of seals the deal. Because it's one thing to see everything that God does. Every human being sees what God does. Not every human being knows what God is like. It's one of the things that was said about Moses that God said. It was one of the things that God bemoaned about Israel. That they saw his ways... They saw his actions. They went through the Red Sea. They ate the manna from the sky. They saw the actions of God. But he says, only Moses came to know my ways. Only Moses kind of understood the nature, the character of God out of all those millions of people that made up the people who saw his actions. To this very day, people still see Believer, unbeliever, wherever you are on the planet, if you've interacted with the planet or nature or animals or life, then you've seen the ways of God. But most people who see the ways of God write it off to just being nature or just being the way things are or just being Darwinian evolution. They explain the activity of God in some naturalistic way because they don't know the nature, the character, the real person of God. And so God is going to make his closing argument on, yes, I do everything. Yes, I created everything. Yes, I do all the things that you don't do that still happen on this planet. I create all of that. I do all of that. But now you have to stand up against who I am, what I'm like. And all of us, I think could say I thank God for stuff. I thank I thank God for food. I thank God for another day of health. I thank God for the things he does for me. But how often do you just think about I thank God that he's holy. I thank God that he is a righteous judge. I thank God for the very intrinsic character of God, the glory of God, the otherness of God, the assayity of God, the very essence of the character of God is God's closing argument. Mm-hmm. So that's what we will look at next week. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.